Welcome. Hello, Charlie and Marty. So 22 years ago, we prayed for him. 22 years ago. And I'll bet his mom and dad 22 years ago would never have thought they would see this day. So tonight, I am just so honored to introduce to you Stephen Lee. Stephen was born and raised here, grew up in a wonderful Christian family. He made some poor choices. He got into drugs big time. He got into violent situations. He went to treatment. He failed. He went to treatment. He failed. I'm going to let him tell you all that. (laughs) He, He went to treatment. He failed. But today, he's clean. He's sober. He has his own real estate business. He looks great. And he's going to share with you his journey. And mom and dad are sitting right here to be sure he doesn't embellish too much. Because you're going to say, uh-uh, it didn't happen that way. But the point of all this is, like Fair was kind of reading, is it's in God's timing. You know, we want healing. We want our kids to be restored. We want them to be healthy and well. And year after year after year, we pray and we don't see any fruit. At least we don't think we do. But it's all in his timing. And uh, so I'm going to pray for you, Steve, and then I'm going to welcome you up. And you take over, buddy. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for redeeming Stephen, God, and restoring him to his family and to you, Lord, and just making him a clean, wonderful vessel, Father. We just thank you for his courage and his willingness to be here tonight to open up his life to us and share with us the good, the bad, and the ugly, Lord, in the hopes that it will help other parents that are anxious over their children and their adults. Father, we just pray that you'll continue to bless his work. You'll keep your hand on him that he'll continue to remain sober and clean as he has for the last nine years, and that the words he speaks will be your, your words, Lord, that you will be glorified as a result of his testimony tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, brother, it's all you. All right, so thanks for the introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, it's great seeing a lot of people here that I've known for a while or probably know of me for a while. Um, I'm going to do my best to get through this without crying. Um, it's been an emotional week talking to my parents who are reliving a lot of this stuff. Um, are we starting on great? <laughs> so, I know, right? So I really want this to be interactive. If you guys want to stop me in the middle of this, feel free to. I want to make sure that I leave some time at the end um, for you guys to ask questions and stuff. I don't want to talk for a whole hour. Um, and really, this is my actually my first time telling my story to a group like this. Normally when I'm telling my story, it's to people in treatment or I'm meeting with young men that are in the middle of this. Um, so I had to do some editing. I don't need to get into all to the dirty details of it. Um, so the way I always structure these is what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now for me. Um, so starting out with what it was like, kind of to piggyback on what John said, already said, um, grew up here in East Cobb. I have an older sister. Um, we um, was homeschooled to about midway through fourth grade. Uh, went to public school, then eventually went to a private school around sixth grade. And I would say that's probably the first time I started feeling a little bit different. Um, and I think that's normal for kids that age, um, but it felt a little bit different, I guess, on top of that. Um, around that time, maybe sixth or seventh grade, we came here. We started attending here. I had an amazing group of friends here. 
Um, some of y'all might know who Christian Stanfill is. He's like the Justin Bieber of Christian music. Uh, really great guy, still in connections with him. Um, and I was super involved in the church. I mean, I was one of the worship leaders. I was here all the time. And it was, this was what was important to me. My family, I had an amazing family, huge. When we were all together, there'd be 30 or 40 of us. Um, and we all were local, grew up right over here near Bishop Lake. Um, so I had a perfect childhood. Um, really, then I started moving into high school. And I think that's when my issues really started to happen. Um, that's already a tough time for kids. Um, and trying to figure out who you are, but it's kind of took a different turn for me because going from what I was doing and the family I did come from to, I would say, almost an immediate switch. Um, maybe some of it was a little bit progressive, but it felt like once it changed, it really changed. Um, for me, the first initial issue was anger. Um, I don't know where it came from, and it got to be uncontrollable, um, arguing with my parents, fighting in school all the time. Um, blackout anger and I never really know where that came from um, skipping school so <laughs> one story I will tell <laughs> I was at <laughs> middle of the day at school and in line at skipped I was in line at Publix getting sub sandwiches and I felt a little tap on my shoulder and it was my wonderful mother standing behind me <laughs> so that did not go over well she called the school and they're like she was like do y'all know that Stephen Lee's not there so um, they're like yeah he's never here so <laughs> um and that was really, you know, that took them by surprise. You know, my sister is very different than me, as most kids are. Um, she didn't really deal with a lot of this stuff. Everybody deals with things, but um, we were just very, very different. So I'm sure it caught them by surprise. Um, as all this stuff started happening, they tried everything from trying to be understanding and trusting to the tough love and then everything in between. Um, and I can't imagine what that was like for them because raising a kid that's normal is hard enough and then raising somebody like me is probably twice as hard. Um, what really it boiled down to is I look back on that, I became obsessed with this thought of freedom. Being able to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do. Um, and that went from my parents to school um, and, and God, obviously. Um, and I think we all know that that never ends well when we try to run our own lives like that. Um, really, the first kind of stuff started was drinking for me and pot. Um, I would say 14, 15 is when I started experimenting with all that stuff. Um, and then, like I said, it was just kind of like a freight train. It was I experimented with a little thing, a few things, and I was like, I like this, and I want more of this all the time. Um, it Again, the anger came out, the violence came out destroying things at the house, always fighting at school. Um, and then I got my driver's license, which made everything worse. That's more freedom. Now I'm mobile. I can do what I want. Um, well, within reason. <laughs> um, and that's when the violence and I got involved in drug dealing. Um, I had to completely turn my back on God. I completely turned my back on all my Christian friends. Um, I lived at home but wanted nothing to do with them. Um, that became what was important to me, to run with that crowd. Um, started, that started, then about 17, um, I moved out of my house. So in the state of Georgia, at 17, you can leave. Um, your parents can't kick you out, but you can leave. And I had spun a crazy story to a friend's parents of what my home life was like that was not the truth. Um, so... <laughs> It was a friend's parents. I stayed there, and I was there for two weeks. 
Um, on the second week, they went out on town for on a family vacation, and I threw a huge party and destroyed their house. Destroyed their yard, everything. Um, the father was an ex-football player and came home and said that it took everything in him not to put me through the wall. <laughs> so, needless to say, I was asked to leave there. Um, I came back home, and nothing had changed. I was still the same person, um, still anger, still involved in drugs, drug dealing, fighting. Um, so at 18, my parents said that you have two choices. You can abide by what our rules are here, or you can go. And I chose to leave. Um, before I move forward with the rest of this, I just want to preface, this is not their fault. Um, I had made these decisions. I had put myself in this position. And they needed to do whatever they could to save what was left of the family. They needed to protect my sister, they needed to protect their property, and they needed to protect their marriage. It was the only decision. It got really rough after that, and none of that is their fault. Um, so this is where it started getting really bad. So at 18, I moved in with a best, one of my best friend's uncles who was a sports agent um, right over here in East Cobb. And you can imagine what that life was like. Um, lots of athletes around. I could do whatever I wanted to. Um, stopped going to school, dropped out of high school my senior year, um, started partying a lot. Um, they were able to get me into clubs and bars at 18, um, drinking, driving, um, and that was the first time that I did a serious drug, cocaine. We were partying and they would make like to make me drive down to the clubs and one night I felt like I was too drunk and they pulled out some cocaine and said do this and you'll be fine and I did it and I was off to the races um, I ended up getting really close with the guy that he was getting his drugs from um, not a good guy um, and I began doing some work for him and it got really really ugly for me um, and I was 18 I was just a kid I didn't know what I wanted but I thought I did know and there's nothing in this world more dangerous than that. Um, so ironically, he went out. Of, the uncle went out of town one time, and guess what I did? Threw a huge party and destroyed his place. Um, so asked me to leave. So you can kind of start seeing this repetition with me of it's all I'm the one that matters. It doesn't matter. I don't care about your property. I don't care about any of this stuff. I wanted to do what I wanted to do, and I didn't care if it cost me everything. Um, so from there, I kind of couch hopped. Um, lived out of my car for a little bit, um, lived with some friends, and then eventually ended up moving to Athens with a bunch of my friends. They were all graduating high school and moving up there. So around 19, um, I moved up there and lived with some friends. Um, and then again, it just perpetually got worse. Um, I decided at some point up there that around 20 that I wanted to try and make a change. And my aunt, my dad's sister, worked for a group called World Vision. And at the time, she was living in Albania. And so I said, I packed my bags, and I went and lived with her um, for a few months, um, and it was amazing. I mean, I traveled around, I stayed with her at the Capitol during the weekends, and then during the weeks, on a Monday morning, I would get on a bus, go out to some city, and do whatever they needed me to do. I helped build a school for a roof, helped build a uh, bridge for kids to get to school, um, worked as a driver, which was really interesting. Um, and it was amazing. I felt like that was great. For my, the longest time I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer. So that was like, I was loving it then. <clears throat> um, and met a lot of really great people and felt like I had kind of fixed myself, so to speak. Um, so then I came back here 
So let me rewind a bit. I'd already been I'd already been in legal trouble before then. I, th- I think I'd been arrested two or three times by then. A couple assault charges, a couple um, underage drinking. Luckily, some of that stuff didn't stick. Um, so I came back here with what a, a renewed hope, but also a false sense of hope. Because as I look back on that, my relationship with God didn't really change. I didn't get right with Him. I felt like. Obviously, getting out of the situations I was in and away from those people, there's a natural kind of healing and a change, but it doesn't last because I didn't get right with him. Um, so when I moved back to Atlanta after that, um, I decided I was going to go back to Athens. And, of course, they were like, that's probably not a good idea. And, of course, I said, well, you don't know. I know better. Um, so I went back to Athens. Um, and then that was when things started getting back again. So back to doing cocaine, back to the drug dealing. Um, it got really, really ugly up there. Um, a lot of stuff had caught up with me. I owed a lot of people money, um, and it was, I was, it was bad. So that was, I guess, 22, um, and that was the, I tried to commit suicide. Oh, I ate 17 Xanax bars. And did a lot of cocaine, and I don't mean to be graphic, but I just want you to know the power of God. And I barricaded myself in my room and called my parents and told them what I had done. And that was the last thing I remember. Um, and I don't know how I survived that. I woke up the next morning, obviously not feeling too great, um, <laughs> but they came up there, and I met them at the varsity that's in Athens. And they said, I mean, I don't remember, but they tell me that I looked like the shell of a shell of a person, that I was probably 130 pounds, um, jittery, um, paranoid, that telling them that people were coming after me, some of which was the drugs and some of which was probably true. Um, but at that moment, I still couldn't be convinced to come back home. I still wanted to feel like I could do it myself. Now, that quickly changed in the next couple days, and I called them and said, I can't do this. I need you to come get me. Um, So they came and got me and moved me back to Atlanta. Um, And I did okay for a while. I did. Um, Started working in restaurants. I've been in restaurants off and on most of my life until real estate, obviously. Um, But I did okay for a while. Then I moved out again and got a place, and I was working at Rays on the River, which... um, uh, as a server, ironically, I made a lot of money. Um, but every single penny was gone to, again, cocaine and, again, alcohol. We would go out to the bars and spend ridiculous amounts of money. I had a roommate who I actually ironically ran into not too long ago, and he's doing great. Um, but he was like a mirror image of me, and we pushed each other to the limits. Um, again, with the fighting and the drugs, and it just got out of control. Um, so at that point, things had really kind of caught up for me. Um, my mental space was not good. Um, I remember one night I was sitting in a car, had come home in the apartment complex, and I was really upset about something, and then I don't remember anything. And I remember coming to, to my roommate at the time, hiding me underneath the stairs because the cops were there. Um, and he said that he had come home. <laughs> and found me punching the metal door and there was blood everywhere and he didn't know what I was doing didn't know what I was saying and I don't remember any of it so woke up the next day and I could barely I couldn't even hold a cup Um, 
ends up I had uh, I'd shattered this hand I had a boxer's fracture um, so went to the doctor obviously got that done was supposed to get surgery on it um, which is a whole other story the doctor was kind of irritating yeah oh thank you <coughs> um, so when you break bones or you get kind of injuries they give you painkillers so I'd done a little bit but cocaine was really my thing for most of the time um, so as a classic, I had a high tolerance, and as being an addict, if they tell you to take one every four hours, I'm taking five every 30 minutes. And blew through those super quick, obviously. And then had a friend give me an Oxy for the first time. And that was it. It was like my brain said, this is what we've been looking for our whole life, your whole life. I had severe depression, obviously. I had some serious PTSD from some of the things I'd been involved in before that. And this helped it all go away. It helped me not think about anything. It helped me feel good. Um, and nothing mattered. And that, again, I was off to the races. Um, traditional, boring, cliche story. I started eating them, then started snorting them, and then started injecting them. Um, and that got, obviously, really ugly. Um, I, we had a huge falling out with that roommate, um, obviously and moved back in with my parents again and somehow was able to hide it from them for a while. Um, I was using a lot, I mean, probably spending close to four or $500 a day, stealing, robbing, pawning stuff, whatever I could do to make sure I got my fix. Um, and that's what got me through the day. It helped me not to dream, to have not to get through the PTSD. Um, but obviously that's never gonna last. So. I had completely run out of money, completely run out of resources, had nothing, and I was had the flu, and my mom came in my room and jerked the covers off, and I was probably 120 pounds at that time, and she said I look like a stick person, and she, if anybody knows my mom, she has the gift of exhortation, <laughs> she can look right into your soul and drag it out of you, and so I couldn't lie anymore, she, that was, she said, you need to tell me what's going on. Um, and that was the first time in my entire life at 27, I admitted that I had a drug problem. Um, and with, she had already been, they'd already been involved in this ministry for a while. Um, and this is an amazing group. So if you're new to here, this is where you need to be. If you're struggling, if your kids are struggling, this is the support system you need. Um, so I admitted that I had a problem. So she got on the phone with John. He got on the phone with a lady named Jennifer. At foundations who saved my life. Oh my. Sorry. So, I don't, I can't. We I met with my parents to kind of get make sure I had all the details straight of the story. So I can't remember if it was the day of or the day after I met with Jennifer. But a cop showed up on my door. I had just admitted to my mom that I was a drug addict. I was going through horrible withdrawals, and a cop showed up with an arrest warrant to take me to jail. And she went and told him I was there. <laughs> and so I had to come down and. I just told him. I said, look, I just told my mother that I am an addict, and I am trying to get help, but if you take me to jail, I don't know what's going to happen. And it was just by the grace of God that he gave me a second chance. He said, I'm not going to take you to jail. I'm going to reduce this to a fine, and I'm going to make sure that your parents are able to pay this and that you don't have to appear in court. But you have to promise to go get the help you need. 
And I did. Um, so I can't, again, I can't remember if it was the day of or the day after, but I went and met with Jennifer at Foundations. Um, middle of the summer, and I'm in complete withdrawal, so I'm wearing a hoodie, and I'm sweating and shaking and don't know what's going on. And um, they did an evaluation on me, kind of asked what was going on, figured out what was best. Um, and then they called my mom and said, he needs to go to treatment, and he needs to go in about six hours. Um, and my mom was in the hospital. My dad was in the hospital getting a mass removed that they thought might be cancerous. And she was in the bathroom of the hospital having this conversation about me. And I just can't imagine what that was like. Um, so the next, the, Jennifer was amazing. John was amazing. They set everything up for her. Um, they said, don't worry, just we'll set it all up. Just make sure he's on a plane. Um, they had to give me some painkillers just to make sure I didn't go crazy and go too far into withdrawals that I would try and leave and bail on the whole plan. So next morning I was on a plane to Memphis to a place called La Paloma, um, and I did really good there initially. I was there for about 45 days. You go through the whole medical detox, and then you move to a separate building, um, lots of counselors. I thrived there. I actually became president of the community. I voted for to be president of the community. Um, and then one of the guys that was there was a Marine. And he went on, I don't know, formation, or he had to do something that they allowed him to leave. And he came back with syringes. And we somehow started convincing the kids in the detox center to pocket their detox meds and give them to us. And you can cook those up and shoot them, and it feels just like an opiate or a heroin. And... The bad part, the good part of the time, bad part now is that if you if they if you do a P test, they can't tell. So here I am in rehab, trying to get clean, about to get out, and I'm using again. Um, so I don't I, again I don't remember how all this came to pass, but it, it had been decided that I wasn't going to come back to Atlanta when I was done. That I needed to go somewhere else, so I decided to go to Delray Beach. Was some of the guys I was in treatment with were headed there. Um, if I don't know if anybody knows about there, it's like the um, recovery capital of America. It's also the, where the original pill mills came from. One of the real reasons we have Oxycontin is because of that part of the country. Um, so, um, in perfect addict fashion, I arranged for a girl to meet me at the airport. I was flying from Memphis to Atlanta and then there to Delray. So I flew out of Memphis, landed in uh, Atlanta, and within 30 minutes I had a needle in my arm. And got on a plane and went down to the halfway house, checked in, did a drug test, and failed. And of course they were like, you've been out of rehab for like 30 minutes. How are you failing a drug test? Um, so in those kind of situations, obviously they can't let me be there. They can't let me be around the other people. They don't know what my mental state is. They don't know, don't know if I'm going to continue to use. So they had to put me to, um, kick me to another um, place until I could pass a drug test, um, which was very interesting. Um, you're in a little tiny room sharing it with a guy. I shared it with a guy that had just gone out of prison for eight years for um, running a prostitution ring and a crack house, and his name was Diablo. 
So that was <coughs> a little interesting. And Diablo loved all my clothes and the things I wore and the things I had. So <laughs> there was a lot of asking. Of course, I didn't give up anything, but there was a lot of tense moments with him. Um, so once I was able to pass the drug test, I went back to the original halfway house that I was supposed to go to. Um, and I did okay for a little bit. I was working at a really nice restaurant um, right on 38. You walked out of my restaurant across a two-lane road, and your feet were in the sand. Um, and you think, you know, I have it made. Um, but one of the guys I was in treatment with had come down there, too. He got to know a local, and I started using again. Um, and that's when it got really, I know I keep saying this, but <laughs> this is when it got really bad for me. Um, I was anything that I could get my hands on, I was putting in a needle and shooting up my arms. Anything. Pills, heroin, cocaine, anything. Um, recovery is very tough, especially in a place like that. There are so many good places and good people that are there to help, but there's all a, lot of, a lot of people that aren't. There are a lot of people that are there for the financial gain. They see an opportunity to make a lot of money for people in desperate situations. And unfortunately, that halfway house I was originally at, they caught me using again. One of my roommates had told on me, um, which was the right thing to do. And I ended up at a place that was like that, that didn't drug test me, didn't really care about curfews, um, didn't care if we had girls over, didn't care. Um, and that was exactly what I wanted at the time. So with little to no supervision, I began just full-on addiction and probably the worst it had ever been for me. Um, and I was there for about a year. Um, I was, and ironically, again, I was going through the steps. I had a sponsor. I was going to meetings, um, but it was very apparent that I was not living it. Um, my sponsor at the time knew something was up, said, we need to take you somewhere to, to a detox center. Um, and I wanted one last hurrah, and I overdosed at the, at the detox facility. Um, and it was a state-run detox facility, which I know is necessary, but those things are hideous. Um, I was in there with people that had serious psychological issues. It was very dirty, um, but that's where I was. Um, so I was there for just a few days, got in contact with my parents, told them everything was going on, and they made arrangements for me to come back here and go back to another rehab. Um, so I went to a place over in, in the Kennesaw Marietta area. Um, and I was there for, so I was at law, my first treatment for about 45 days down in, in um, Florida, bouncing around for about a year and then back up here to a place. And I was there for about four or five months. And it was just the same old story that I started out good. Then some of the guys started bringing in spice to smoke. And then it was just on from there. There was very little supervision at night, and I would leave around midnight and be gone all night um, using, hanging out with friends, and then come back four or five in the morning, and um, nobody knew. Um, this place had some really great intentions, but they didn't understand what this was all about. Um, they seemed really, which was kind of ironic, that they were very adamant on us not using nicotine which if any of you guys have kids that have been through addiction and they're coming clean, that's all we want to do is smoke cigarettes and tell war stories. That's all we want to do. Um, so I kept failing. They kept testing me for nicotine, but they never caught that I was using heroin again um, for a long time. I was there for four or five months. So 
kind of sort of came clean with my parents. Um, <clears throat> didn't tell them I was using heroin again, but told them that uh, there was spice and other things going on. And so they decided you need to go somewhere else. Um, so then I took, went to a place up in North Georgia called Penfield, um, which was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. It was out in the middle of nowhere. There was the most amazing group of guys there. We played softball. Um, we played pranks on each other. It was Christian-based, so we had services. I had an amazing counselor there that really got me, really understood me. Um, and I did really well. And I, th- nine, I was there for like three months. Is that right? Six weeks. Okay. And so after that, they actually asked me to stay on, to see, to be kind of like a counselor, to stay on as somebody who'd been through it and to kind of help mentor the guys. But, um, of course, I had it all figured out. I was fine. I was healed. I was ready to go. Um, so came back to Atlanta. Um, again, moved back in with my parents. Um, and I was going to, excuse me, a place called Foundations. Now, this place was the original place where I admitted I had a drug problem, where Jennifer worked, that John set me up with. This is one of the most amazing places you could ever imagine. The people there are un- unbelievable. Um, the woman that was running it, named Jennifer, is probably one of the most amazing, amazing people I've ever read in my life. Um, so I did okay, again, <laughs> for a little while, and then I relapsed again. Started doing heroin again, um, pills, and um, so, again, came clean to my parents, and they let, luckily they let me stay at Foundations, but they say he's got to go to a halfway house again. So I decided I was going to go to this place and done what he called Hope Homes. Um, and again, I wanted to have one last hurrah before I went. So I went and got high again. Pawned the last thing I had to my name and shot up one more time. Um, I had agreed to go to Hope Homes, and I, I said I wanted to drive myself. <laughs> and I got about halfway down the street and came back and said, I can't do it. Um, I was in full-on withdrawals, and so my dad drove me and brought a trash can, a trash bag, and I threw up the whole way there. And I checked in, and that was on October 23rd, 2013. And that was the last time I ever did dope. It's the last time I ever did drugs. Um. Andy Martin met me there, who is the most lovable, goofy man you'll ever meet in your life. Um, open, help. I mean, he was, he said he was the only person he had ever met, I was the only person he had ever met that he felt like was, was a worse addict than him. Um, and this guy had some stories. Uh, so they kept me on suicide watch and health watch for about five days while I, comp- while I went through it completely cold turkey. Um, it was the first time I'd ever completely detoxed, not medically. Um, and let me tell you, it's it's not pleasant. Um, you feel like you're not going to actually die, but boy, do you feel like it. Um, but I think that that was important for me to go through that pain. Um, again, had just an amazing group of men there. Um, they were serious about what we were doing there. We There was about five or six of us that we actually held each other accountable. It wasn't just a say stuff or cover each other's tracks or anything like that. Um, we were close with our with each other we were honest with ourselves and we were close with god um that was the first time i truly worked a program i got a sponsor i worked the 12 steps i was honest with myself started going through my amends um and started trying to heal um it still wasn't easy though my roommate disappeared for about a day and then i found him in our walk-in closet dead from an overdose um so it's just 
You ne- it's, you're never safe from it. And it's about, are you serious about it or are you not? Um, but I was lucky enough to be close to God, close to my parents. I had a great support system there. That, of course, that was tough, but it was just another reminder that I'm this close to n- not going past this, to not making it one more day. Um, so <clears throat> now th- that's the what it was like. So now let's get to the what happened. What really, what made me change? I felt like for a long time that there was one moment, there was something that had happened to me in my childhood, there was something that had flipped this switch for me, that this is why I was the way I was. This is why I was tormented. This is why I felt like drugs were my only solution. This is why I was always so angry. This is why people never understood me. Um, And that was just so wrong. I mean, that was a cop-out. Even if there, say there was something, that's not an excuse for me to make the decisions that I made. So what happened was I finally realized that it was me. That the moment, the one thing was me. And that was the hardest, the most freeing moment of my entire life. (laughs) Because... I can't do something about something that happened in my past. I can't do something about something that somebody did to me. But I can absolutely do something about me. And so that's when I really started to put the work in. I was honest with myself. I was honest with others. I made true amends and stuck to them, even as painful as they were, to admit the, some of the things that I had done to another person. Things that I thought I would never have to share, that nobody would ever find out about. I had to pull those skeletons out and admit it, that I had done it, and move on past it. Went through the full 12 steps. I had an amazing sponsor um, and continued to grow my relationship with my parents and God. Um, I was at that halfway house for a while, and then they have what's called a three-quarters house where you can move in, and it's less restrictive. You don't have a curfew. You're allowed to get a job. You're allowed to drive. You're allowed to talk to girls, um, which had been a while. (laughs) For me, which was probably more difficult than most, but uh, <laughs> um, I got a job, so I was finally allowed to work again. So I got a job at PF Chang's at in Dunwoody, right across the street from our place. And again, God bless me. I had two bosses, and then eventually a third that believed in me, and they were willing to give me another chance. And this is probably chance like fifteen by this point. <laughs> They taught me the business side of it, of the restaurant business. And within six months, I was a manager. And then within another three months, I was assistant GM. And then the next month, they put me on a team that traveled around to different PF Changs and figured out what was wrong with them and how to fix them. And then I leveraged that into another job at Ted's Montana Grill doing the same thing, going and figuring out what's wrong with it and how to fix it. I met this man right here. I hired him while I was running that Ted's Montana Grill. Amazing person. Um, I had an amazing boss there. I had two amazing bosses there, too, that, again, believed in me, taught me the business. And then God blessed me one more time. I was running a shift at the one in East Cobb, and a guy stopped me, and he was a headhunter for the restaurant business and said, "I'm gonna, you need to be somewhere different, and got me a job as a general manager of a fine dining restaurant down in Midtown attached to the Woodruff Art Center, which is where the High Museum of Art is and Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And... I had made it. That was my goal when I first started was to become a general manager, to run a restaurant the way I wanted to. Um, And then I felt like I had accomplished everything I wanted to within that business and then got my real estate license. 
and that was in 2017. Um, and I hammered that really hard and got on a team, worked my way up to basically running the team, figured it out for myself, and then broke off and started my own team. Um, so those are two of my agents right there. Carrie's one of the people that helps me with my closings. She's amazing. She works at a closing attorney. And last year, my business did $20 million in sales. And I don't say that to brag. I say that to show the power of the restoration of God. That somebody that was as bad as I was, somebody that had turned their back on him, their family, on everything, had disrespected everybody around me, had dis- disrespected my body and myself for so long that he forgave me for everything and then gave me the world. So now I have amazing relationship with my parents. My dad's my best friend. I have dinner with him every single Wednesday night, and we do Bible studies. I have an amazing little niece, my little partner in crime, Liza Grace. Um, I have my real estate business, and as of this week, I started a second business coaching real estate agents and got my first client yesterday. Um, And I do my best to do things like this. Um, I can't imagine what it's like to be on y'all's end of it. As hard as it was for me, I can imagine it's equally, if not more, hard for you guys. Because you don't have control. You don't know what it's like. Um, You blame yourself, and you can't. It doesn't matter what y'all did, good or bad. There's no book on how to raise your children. And we can't use that as an excuse to do the things that we've done. Um, I'm finally finding some peace. After a really, really long time. Now, I still struggle. Um, my biggest struggle is still trying to run my own life. Um, even as a, up to last week, you know, Jesus brings me to my knees. Um, we were in a service last week, and I've been, he is, God has given me some pretty good success. And what do I do? I attribute it to myself. Oh, I did all these things. I pulled myself out of this. I created this business. And all of a sudden, over the last two or three weeks, it was like, I couldn't be decisive about anything. I lost focus. I didn't know how to lead these guys or where to take the business or how to get there. And then we're in a sermon on Sunday at a church that I've been visiting. um, And the pastor is like, it felt like it was me, the Holy Spirit, and him were the only people in the room. um, Talking about becoming spiritually deaf and blind. That at some point God says, oh, you got this? Go ahead and take it. And he turns that your life over. And then you're like, wait a second, I don't got it. Um, And so even up until last week, it's still a struggle for me. But God has given me a heart and a family and ears to listen to what he has to say. So it's still a struggle for me. That's my, that will always be my struggle. I feel like I probably have to work a little bit harder at it than most people do. Um, But ironically, I love that because it makes me cherish it more. It makes me appreciate it more. And every day, for me personally, I have to constantly surrender myself to that. And that's the only reason I'm here. And that's the only way I'm going to continue. That the success and everything he's given me is not mine. He's given it to me to be a steward of it. And I have to remind myself of that. Um, and that's it. That's my story. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? I know that was a lot. Um, hopefully I was clear. Hopefully I gave some hope. 
maybe. Um, does anybody have any questions? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's been actually been a long time. It's probably been a little over a year since I've told my story all the way through. I think that's why I'm probably so emotional because um, you kind of get away from it. Um, and I don't want to get away from it. It's not I don't want, I don't want to dwell on the past, um, but I don't want to go back to it. And this is this kind of stuff is how I don't go back to it. Absolutely. And like I said, this is the first time I've spoken to a group like this. Um, a lot of times people ask what my biggest regret is. And you know, I feel like that's kind of changed and morphed. It used to be, you know, things that I had done or things that had happened to me. But I feel like more recently my biggest regret is that I put my parents in a position that people questioned them and who they were as parents. And I think that's the biggest message I want to put out here to you guys, that it's not your fault. You can't take ownership of that. You do what you know is best to do. And you help. You hope that God helps you guide. Helps guide you, but it's not up to you guys. It's not something you've done. It's the choices that we make. You could be the perfect parent. You could be the worst parent. We all have decisions. And yeah. Stephen, you said that you're struggling still. And I appreciate that because I'm the same way with control. Yeah. And uh, forgetting that God has put you in the situation. And what about? Do you have any cravings anymore for drugs or alcohol, or are you around situations where people are drinking in front of you? And if so, how do you handle that? The the drug, the farther I get away from it, the less cravings I have. Now I will admit it's a weird phenomenon. Sometimes it'll just be out of nowhere, and I can taste cocaine in the back of my throat. It's weird, um, but it's been a long time since that's happened. Um, but no, I, I believe that God has. I don't want to say that I will. That will never happen to me again because that's a dangerous thing to say. Um, but I, again, fully believe in the restoration power of God, and I feel like I have absolutely moved past that. And it would take a lot for me to get back to that point. But it could happen like that. You never know. What about alcohol? No, not a concern. Are you around it at all? Do you get you? feel tempted when you see other people drink in front of you? Or? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that everybody's, I think everybody's struggle into recovering everything, I think it looks very different for each person. Um, so nah, I would say no to that. I think this has just been such an encouragement to, because I know there's a lot of parents in here tonight that are still asking God when, how long do we have to wait for this? And your story, I, I had forgotten a lot of it, <laughs> just reliving all this and just knowing for the parents in here, don't ever give up praying. And I know your parents never gave up praying, and we all pray for you. I know. It's just such an encouragement to me to see what you've done with your life and the godly man that you are now. And um, so I want to encourage the parents that are in here that are waiting on that to see God work in their child's life that don't quit praying. It's it's crazy. I mean, just to be, it's moments like this for me are just surreal. Um, I remember the first time I met John was because I was trying not to go to jail, <laughs> you know. And now here I am telling other people how that was like. Um, the Topes, who I haven't known super great, but I know that they feel like they probably know me because they've been praying for me for twenty two years. Um, 
So just like John said before, I never in a million years thought I'd be here. I never in a million years thought I'd own my own business. I never thought I would be in a position where I could turn around and help somebody else. Um, and for me, for me, that's probably the most important thing, to be able to continue to do that. Um, so I don't know how y'all normally do these things, but if y'all want to give my contact information out, I'm can, here to be a resource for anybody. If you have any questions, um, if you want me to talk to any of your kids, I mean, again, I don't know how, if that's normal or not. Um, <laughs> so anything, anything. Um, I had a question. You mentioned... Last time we, all you've been through all these years, relapse, relapse, relapse. Well, that last ride with your dad, as I understood it, you were getting sick in a bag. That was the last time I believe I understood you said you have used since. Yep. What What was the defining moment at that time? What What made that point different than, than the previous point? So that I didn't come to that realization till afterwards. At that moment. I wasn't thinking anything. Um, but again, it goes back to me realizing that I was the problem. That that was the moment I stopped blaming people, stopped searching for that one thing, thinking that once I found it, that's what will fix everything. Once I figure out, was I abused? Was I, what happened to me at some point that made all these things happen? For me, for years, I thought that finding that would fix me. Um, but realize that was the first time during that time at Hope Homes that I realized that it was me, that I was the problem, that nothing had happened to me. I had amazing parents, amazing childhood. I just went a completely different direction. Um, so it's kind of like the prodigal son in the Bible. You, you were in the pen with the pigs, pigs. and finally came to your senses. Yeah. It just took you a while, yeah. as it does with a lot of people. And I think that's the toughest Again, I can't pretend to know what it's like to be a parent of a prodigal, um, but that's the toughest thing is just the time, that knowing that there's not one thing that you can say, there's not one treatment center that they can go to, there's not one counselor that's going to change this. They're, we're not going to change until we're ready to change. I mean, I went to some of the best counselors, the best um, rehabs. I mean, I had people around me that loved me. Ashley Kilpatrick, I think, has spoken here with you guys before saw me for like six years and didn't charge me a single penny. Um, now that had a not so great ending, but um, I had everybody, everything I needed. Everybody was there to help me. I just refused to take it. I refused to do it. it didn't, none of that mattered to me. Um, so I think that that's probably the toughest pill to swallow for a parent, to know that you can't fix it, that there's nothing you can do. And unfortunately, sometimes it's just time. They have to, we have to hit the rock bottom. We have to understand that. Um, I think that that's why the tough love part is so important. I think that if I hadn't hit those rock bottoms, if it was continually softened and I was continually rescued and it what never really got too bad for me, what reason do I have to change? If I know that there's always a fallback, I can push it to the limit but get bailed out the last second. Um, but once that stopped happening, things were a lot different when I knew it was all me and that there was no safety net. And I can't imagine what that was like for them. But that's the kind of stuff that saves our lives. Where did you truly reconcile with your parents? That's probably a better question for you guys. When do y'all feel like our relationship really actually changed? That's a good question because as you said, it's been I'm better and then I'm worse and I'm better and then I'm worse. So. Uh, we went in with uh, at, at Hope Homes, you know, 
you've met the right people, uh, but there's still other drug users around you, and there's always that period of, of you possibly uh, relapsing again. Um, so we were cautiously positive. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to believe it so much, but at the same time, that in the back of your head is it could change in 10 minutes with a phone call. Um, and so it came slow, but it came after that, and it was a matter of you had to prove yourself. And, and the closer you, or the longer you were clean and honest with yourself, that's where I felt like I believed more in you and that, that, that it was the real thing for yeah. But, uh, can you talk? <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to come up? No. Speaking to the microphone? Um, I think one of the things that I had to learn in hearing all this again was been very difficult to say the least. You as a parent get broken. And it took me a long time to even forgive God. How, you know, I tried to do all this perfectly. And I was so broken thinking, I thought, well, if I did A, B, and C, I, you know, I'd have the perfect family. But being broken as we, as parents, is also a good place for us. Because we have to be so dependent on, the, we had to be so dependent on the Lord. Because every day I thought, well, we'll, you know, the police will be at the door with the bad news or something. And um, that brokenness that you guys are feeling is also very good for you because you have, you don't have the control. I thought I did. I mean, I lied to people. I, I mean, I did everything to try to make it all fix, and I couldn't fix anything. But that's also where I had to give up control and say, okay, um, uh, you're God, and you, you are, I have a Savior, and do I believe him or not? And it, that's a wonderful part of being in this, is you have, you have the most powerful tool you will ever have, and that's your prayer life. That, that you pray for your child, you pray for your family, you pray for yourself, and then you let God work on you. And there comes, there's a lot of forgiveness that has to happen. There has to be a lot of humility that has to happen. Because everywhere I went, I was like, oh, please don't ask me. You know, I'm embarrassed. And, you know, well, how's your child? And I, I just lied. He's great. Great. He's at Yale. But see, I had to be humble. So in the journey, you guys have the biggest tool you could ever have, and that's your prayer life. Because your God is more powerful than anything else, and he answers prayer. We do have some families that have lost their child, and you have to, you know, I don't know how you reconcile that, but you also have the privilege of getting to know your Lord and Savior on a different level than most people when you're so broken and you're so discouraged and nothing has worked. So that's your hope is him. Uh, and I just, I think we had such a support system with a group that was so important. And you just got to find that right group. But again, I say your power, most powerful tool is your prayer life. And that, and then when you get that down, then you, forgiveness comes. You, you realize, okay, I'm a sinner too. 
I, maybe I don't look like him, but I. Well, I gotta say it like that. <laughs> 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 but use this time wisely, at, with the grief and the anger and the disappointment, to surrender yourselves as well, uh, and let God work it in you during this time as well. You know, like one pastor said that. that um, Successful Christian parenting is measured by what the parents do, not what the kids do. So don't lose sight of that. No. And that's what Donna's saying is you stay faithful. You have to be anchored to your Lord, and you can win that battle on your knees. So. I have a quick question. You said you have an older sister. Mm-hmm. How did your relationship with her Yeah, I can't imagine what it was like on her. I still couldn't imagine. It's the same thing with the parents. I mean, she is an amazing woman. She has worked in churches her whole life. She's worked with kids her whole life. Um, none of this stuff was ever who she was. I mean, I don't think I don't know that she's ever been drunk before. <laughs> um, the 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 tough part about some of this stuff is that I go through the whole process of getting it all out and healing, and I don't know that she totally has, and I don't blame her for that. She doesn't need to do that. Um, but it's that's probably been harder than working my my relationship with them. I, I think that I took so many years not just from them, but from her, of having a brother to be there for her, to protect her, um, to be somebody to talk to. And it's probably embarrassing for her. You know, she's only a year older than me, so we were in school at the same time. I mean, she saw me in the halls beating the tar out of people and heard all the stories about all the things that her little brother had done. Um, so I can't imagine what that, how embarrassing that was for her. Um, I think I feel like I have to work on that relationship with her a lot more now than I do with my parents, but it has come. I mean, it is mind-blowing how far we have come. And there's always a little bit more work to do, but, I mean, we are in a really great place. But for us, it was I had to make amends to her. I had to apologize for her and, and help her and let her understand that I knew all those things that I had done. I knew that I was destroying that family. And that was one of the reasons we had to ask him to leave. What is doing to her? Mm-hmm. And she went through counseling. She's been through a lot of counseling. But angry about the, 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 the loss of those, those years. So there's a lot of anger there on her behalf. And not to continue back to the story, but I was in my first rehab when she had her baby, had my niece. And that was not good. She had, what's it, what was it called? She had... Um, uh, the umbilical cord was constricted, and um, the and then the baby uh, uh, sucked in meconium and had lung problems, and they had to bring a vent from Nashville because she couldn't breathe. So it was an emergency cesarean. It was an emergency cesarean. And she was in ICU. Yeah. yeah. And I couldn't be there for her. I was in a rehab. <laughs> her brother just, I mean. <laughs> I couldn't go and visit. They originally told me I could, but it, that would have been horrible timing for me to show up five days sober at the hotel, at the hospital with all this going on. Um, so again, that's something I'm sure she was. I had to make amends for. I wasn't there. I was. I, her brother wasn't there. And I wasn't there for my niece, but I am now.
Anybody else? classes we went through with a lot of different parents, you started seeing the marriages started to split. There's so much you'd start blaming. I mean, if you don't if you don't surrender at all, then you're carrying out of so much guilt and so much anger and so much, you know, it just it destroys a family if you don't do it right. You've told an amazing story and I appreciate you. Absolutely. Sorry, I cried through most of it. <laughs> Mostly tears of joy. Mostly tears of joy. I wouldn't change anything. I don't regret anything that happened to me because now I can do things like this. I can hopefully, my suffering, I've suffered enough for somebody else that they can hear my story and not have to go through what I've been through. So, If anybody needs to buy, sell, or invest in real estate, I'm your guy. <laughs> Did you get that? StephenLeeGroup.com. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>